have your Bible open or your folder for worship open on at Romans 12, 1 to 8. It's on page 4 of our worship folder. And it is one of my favorite places in the Bible, and I chose it for Confirmation Sunday because when children in 7th and 8th grade, 8th graders stand up after they've been taught thoroughly the basic teachings of Christianity, and they stand up in front of their family and their friends and their church and say, I believe in Jesus and his Lord's Supper and baptism and the Trinity, and I believe in salvation by grace through faith, and I believe in the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments, and I want to walk the walk and talk the talk and be a Christian in my church. When they do that, they're doing it because they've been taught all of those things that they can say they believe. You can't believe without knowing them. But the question is, now that you know all this, how will you live? And it's a question that we've learned to ask as adults every day, and it's what keeps us coming back here. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he wrote one of the very longest letters in the Bible. All of the letters in the Bible, even the short ones, are longer than most of the letters we write. But this one is long of the long. When someone later divided it up into chapters, it's 16 chapters long. Each chapter is longer than most letters you've ever written. But he wrote it knowing that in just like today we have our certain way of communicating through email and text and, and, and uh, all these other ways. He wrote it knowing that this was the main medium of his communicating with a church in Rome. And he knew he was an inspired author in the name of Christ. So he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote. And he had never been there. And the reason he wrote what he wrote to the Romans was to share with them the basic teachings of the Christian faith. So he starts with creation, proclaiming the wisdom of God, chapter 1. He says the law tells us the wisdom of God, chapter 2. But it, in chapter 2, he says the law cannot save you. The people that know the law are even more condemned because the law shuts, this is chapter 3, shuts every mouth saying, here's what God's will is, but you broke it. He says in chapter 4 and 5, in the Old Testament, the people that had the law, they learned that they were saved by forgiveness and grace and the blessedness of the one who was going to send a Savior. Chapter 5, he says, death spread to everybody and everyone's going to face God as their judge. But that the grace of Christ, where he came and died for all of us, gives forgiveness and salvation to all people. So as far as sin reaches, that's how far grace reaches. So grace is for everyone. God's riches at Christ's expense, God's undeserved love for us. And that's the gospel, the good news that he said at the very beginning of the letter, he's not ashamed of. Because when a person who realizes they have they were lost in facing God to judge them in their sins that he has already judged his son and that he forgives them. When they realize that and believe that in their heart, they know that they are the most fortunate people on the planet. They are grace-gifted people. Just real quickly, this is an addition to this morning. One of our confirmation students who's very active in his faith, we were at his house for a celebration of his confirmation. He said to me, Pastor, I've already used the good news that I've learned to turn a friend of mine back to the Christian faith who had left it. I said, well, really, tell me about how it happened. He said, well, 
The main conversation I remember is we were standing in line waiting for the bus. And he told me that he grew up Christian, but already he's in seventh grade talking like growing up was past tense. (laughs) He grew up Christian, but he didn't believe those things anymore. He had way too many questions. And I said, well, what do you think? He said, we had lots of conversations, and I was able to show him from Scripture what God was really saying. So the questions of the world, he's this way he put it, questions of the world would no longer stump him. And I said, what do you think was a pivotal point? And this is what he said. When he said he was afraid to die. Because since he'd left the Christian faith, he, had, he said he, he, he had guilt, he felt guilt, and he did not know what, what was going to happen when he died. And I told him I wasn't afraid to die because Jesus is my Savior. And he said, it was then that he said, my friend said, well, what do you mean that you're so confident? How do you know? Because I have a lot of doubts. And that's when his friend opened his heart to listen to our friend teach him about grace. The reason I tell you that is grace, when you know it and you believe it in Christ, makes you realize that you're a very gifted person. By that, I don't mean gifted in ability. I mean gifted with a gift. Of all the people on the planet, we know how saved we are. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 1 to 11. I only summarized the first six chapters, but then 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 talk about that grace spreading to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And that it's the, it's the grace that runs the Christian's life. And then comes a really big little word. It's only three letters in Greek. It's a lot more letters in English. It's the first, letter of, the first word of Romans 12. Therefore. If God has saved you by grace, <clears throat> therefore, how should you live? How will you live? What will it be like for a Christian? What's different about our friend in the bus line? Why do you live your life the way that you live it? How do you live it? That's what Paul is helping the Romans understand. And that's what he's helping us understand tonight too. And there's two ways that if if you take the eight verses, you you can easily summarize it into two parts. The first part is you will live as a person growing into being like Christ. That's the big therefore. If you're filled with God's grace and love... You'll grow into someone like Jesus. And the second one is that you will actually be able to be gifted enough to help people have eternal life, make a difference in their life. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See that song we sang earlier about my life as a gift? It's a given to you. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I went out and found this picture of uh, hands holding a little plant. Because those hands represent for me God's hands. And the thought in this passage is growing into being like Christ, conforming not to the world but to Christ. And this little plant is alive in faith and grace. And God's holding this little plant represents you, and it's little, but it's going to grow up bigger as long as God's got it in his hands. That's the picture. He's got us in his hands of grace, and he wants us to grow. 
And he says in the passage, don't conform any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that look like? One time, when I was in a college Bible study as a college student, uh, the, the, the guy teaching us said it this way. If you want to find out what you should not do, he said, when you're struggling with a big problem, just gather three or four of your unbelieving friends together and ask them what you should do. And then don't do that. (laughs) So just eliminate those things. That's half of it, right? Don't conform to the world. Because at the very baseline of their thinking, it's all about them and their God of their own destiny. And it's without God and His will. Instead... Because you've been saved by the mercies of God, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a huge thought in this phrase, renewing of your mind. Your mind cannot need to be renewed unless it's not renewed. I know that sounds idiotic. It means that people by nature, and I'm one of them, has a sick mind. We get lost in our thoughts and we get far away from where we need to be and we're easily led astray like sheep and our minds get dirty and dead and sick and they need to be renewed and refreshed. And God knew this all along and so he gave us words, real words that the Spirit has power to change who you are from the inside out, from the words that you learn, put together in thoughts about Him. And He put them in a language, first of all in Hebrew, then in Greek, and then through the people that loved Him, that knew those languages, but knew the language of their people, like ours, English, put them into our language so the same thoughts could translate it into our language, and the thoughts of God could come into the heart of a sick mind and make it well. And so Jesus would quote the word when he fought the devil. Or he, when, he, when he corrected people with stinky thinking, he would give them passages. He said in, in, in the last Tuesday of his life, before he was crucified, they said, well, if a man has seven, you know, a woman marries a guy and then he dies, he marries his brother, then he dies, he marries another, and then he dies, and he marries all seven brothers. And he goes to the, the next life, because they didn't believe in the next life, in heaven. Whose wife will she be since she had seven husbands? And he said, you know not God, nor the word of God, nor the power of God. And he goes, in the, there is a resurrection. And he goes, the Bible says that I'm the God of Jacob and Isaac. And those guys were still living. That's why God told Moses that he was their God. That's word, word of God. And then he said, and in heaven, we're like the angels. We're not given. Not, we aren't angels, but we're like them. We're not given in marriage. And he spoke the word of God. And the apostle Paul whenever he's trying to help us understand what he's saying, is inspired by God, would often quote the Old Testament as the living word of God, right? Peter said Paul's words were the living word of God and that people twist them to their own destruction when Peter wrote his first letter, second letter, second Peter. And, and Peter talked about Paul's words being the word of God. Psalm 119 that we used several times, little pieces of it, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, was part of our confession and absolution, talks about the word that you want us to follow. There's where the famous passage is, your word, you can say it with me, your word is a lamp to my feet, because otherwise I'd be blind in the dark, and a light for my path. 
So how do you get renewed? It's not just finding three pagans and not doing what they say. That's only half of it. It's drawing near to God and finding out the God who gave his son for you. What does he say? How he wants you to live your life. What does he say about marriage? What does he say about music? What does he say about belief and faith and creation and taking care of your body? What does he say about friends and about parents and about church? What does he say? So see, it's not like we can't figure so much out. We can And that's what Paul is saying. Therefore, since you've come to faith, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And anywhere you look in the Bible where it talks about growth and life, it talks about being in a relationship with the written Word of God. So by now, as a Christian, you ought to be thinking, how am I doing with just having a relationship with the Bible? The living Word of God. And maybe the reason I'm victimized by my own thinking so much is that I actually don't just sit and read it with an open heart, trying to just understand what in the world is it trying to say to me. If you're thinking that, I can give you some good advice. Pick up your Bible and start reading at the beginning of Matthew and make this summer would be a summer where you read the New Testament. Read one or two chapters a night. Maybe do a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the night. Get about your day. And just the first four books then, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll be actually seeing Jesus. There's no better person to see. Every now and then, someone will say to me, and they'll say it to you, I have a hard time in life because I didn't have a very good dad or a very good mom. And... The truth is, you have Jesus. Whether you had a great mom, great dad, mediocre mom, mediocre dad, or a crummy one, you have Jesus. And when you read about his life and you see it in the settings where he was, and you ask those thoughtful questions, you let the Spirit teach you, you will be more like him. Because you will look and see, what did he do for me? That's the big question. What did he do for me? He lived a perfect life and he died and rose again. And what would he do, judging by what I see here, If he were me in my world. And just by reading it, you connect yourself to him. You know you do that because you do it when you watch movies and TV. You connect yourself with the players in there, right? And you see if you can adopt their perspective, that character that you're admiring. It's the way humans work. God knows that. So he put in the Bible... Four books about his son. And then all the letters of the Apostle Paul and all the letters otherwise with Peter and 1 John talking to you from the heart of God of these men who were with Jesus. They knew things about Jesus that they didn't write in the Gospels. And they knew the Spirit of God that would teach them. He said would guide them into all truth and they will teach us not to be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it says, this is the cool part. It says, look at the last line. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Who will be able to? 
you. So this confirmation kid says in class one time, Pastor, what do we believe about baptism? Do you hear the fallacy in the question? What do we believe is like saying, you just tell me what to believe. As if only the pastor could know what we could believe. Who can know the perfect will of God? You can. On your own. Having a relationship with him through his word. You can test and approve. And you know what he means by he says you can test and approve? He means you can be confident. It's, there's almost nothing as disconcerting as not knowing what you should think or do in a situation. Not being confident if I should do this or that. That's why young people often get swayed by the peers, right? Should I follow the peers? Should I follow mom and dad? What if mom and dad are telling me I can't go to church? Should I follow them or should I follow my heart? Shakespeare doesn't help. Above all things, to your own self be true, he says. That doesn't help you. You can follow your heart right to hell, can't you? Macbeth did. (laughs) You can know with confidence what the will of God is if you'll be in his word. You'll have an intuition of faith that's strong. How do I say this? It says it right there. If you'll let God transform and renew your mind, you will be able to test and approve what is the perfect will of God, and you'll be confident. You'll know. That's what God wants. He wants to keep you gifted and strong. But it's not just for you. It's so also you'll be a blessing to other people. So you'll make an eternal difference. Remember those two, the little boy that told me from our class, the young man. He said, I was in a bus line, and my friend said, I'm afraid to die. So I'm not afraid to die. And that confidence in Christ intrigued his friend that he would listen. Well, God wants people to be intrigued by you and your spiritual confidence. So you can make an eternal difference. So he's gifted you. And he's also gifted you, not just with the word, but with special gifts that everybody has that are unique to them. So I've got these pictures up here of ways that we become a blessing once we are safe in Christ. There's a mom with a boy with confidence. She's pointing at the book. We'll say it's a Bible. It's just a picture off the internet. She's teaching him about the word of God. She's teaching him the little child that trusts her heart. The guy in the middle is a preacher, confident, teaching God's word. And then the people singing in the choir, singing with joy and confidence. I think you could hear when when Aurelia was singing her confidence in the song that I'm giving myself up to you. And when you sing, whether it's in the pew or up here up front, it's worship when you sing with the confidence of the gospel. And when you are in your sweet spot of your spiritual gifts or your experiences in Christ, and I'm using those together, you are powerful. When you are in your sweet spot of your spiritual gifts and your experiences in Christ, that means in the Word and in life, you are powerful for us, you for me, me for you, you for him, him for her her or him. You're powerful. And so many Christians, I'm going to say it, are ripping off the church. 
because they're not in the Word and they're not reading Romans 8 and what I'm about to read to you. And you're going to see it. That God, this is the heart of God in Romans 12, 1 to 8. The heart of God is saying, I have gifted you so that you would bless others. And I gave you gifts I would not give them because I wanted them to get it from you so you would bless them. And this just lights me up when I read this to get excited, to get you excited about thinking about your own spiritual giftedness. I'll read verse 3 to 8. You follow along. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. When I was, uh, uh, my kids were at home and they were like little, little boys and playing coach pitch baseball. They're kind of their first experience. We didn't, well, we did t-ball and then they did coach pitch. One of my boys would get on the field the, and he was the shortstop, but he'd get frustrated that like the second baseman would let the ball go between his legs and go to the outfield. Or he was afraid that the first baseman couldn't catch the ball if he threw it to him. Because my son was not thinking of himself with sober judgment and that he had a position he had to hold. So sometimes he'd pick up the ball, that shortstop, you know, a grounder, and he'd watch the, the batter and he'd think, I can beat him to first. So instead of throwing it to him, he'd run all the way to first to try to beat him there. And our coach, I was an assistant coach, coach would just like pull his hair out. He picked him up one time off first base and ran, because you could be on the field at that age, ran over and plopped him down at shortstop, said, that's your position, stay there. Throw the ball first. That's what this verse is about. Think of yourself with sober judgment. There are people that feel like that they need to be gifted in every area or else they're failures or that they know better in every area and they treat others as if they can't know because after all, they've got so much experience. Paul says, wait a minute. You're gifted, but you're not that gifted. (laughs) Okay, be sober. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Quiz for you grown-up Christians. Where's the chapter in the Bible that takes that verse and talks about it for about 30 verses in a whole chapter? All members of one body. It's beautiful. That's why I'm testing you. I want you to go read it tonight before you go to bed. 1 Corinthians 12. Okay? In this book, he just says it, boom, a verse. And then he talks a little about spiritual gifts. This is what he's saying. I am in Christ's body with you, and then you're in Christ's body with me. And whatever you got in the body, I don't fully got, except I got you. Some of you are old enough to remember, oh, Sonny and Cher. Remember that song they would finish their little 30-minute show with, or hour show? I got you, babe. (laughs) I'd like Christians to say that to each other. I got you. You're mine. You're in the body of Christ with me. I'm in the body of Christ with you. And we would start learning to appreciate, cheer on, and depend upon the gifts of other people more than we do. That's what God's saying here. Okay, verse 6. We all have different gifts according to the what? The grace given to each of us. Everybody receives grace but to be saved. But the grace that saves everyone comes with different appendages. You ever seen snowflakes? None, no two are alike. No Christian is alike. 
Not just no person, but no Christian is alike. The grace that saved them were all snowflakes. But the grace that they were given the appendages are different spiritual gifts. That's what he's saying. So, when grace was given to you, if your gift is prophesying, which is basically preaching and teaching the truth of God on any matter, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then do it generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Um, these, this is not a complete list, but I bet you found yourself close to one of these just in hearing it. We're all supposed to be generous, but some have the gift of generosity. It's a spiritual gift. We need each other to kind of point us in the right direction and sometimes get us, this is the way Paul is, to get, get coached. You know what coaches do? They, they tell you all week what you're supposed to do on the game during practice, and then you forget during the game, so what would they shout? The rule or the thing that you're supposed to be doing, right? That's what, the, that's what Paul's doing here when he says, if you're given the gift of leadership, then lead. Don't you understand and get the feeling that if you are given a gift and you don't excel in it, that you're not growing. I don't want to go so far as to say he wants to use the word sin, but you're not functioning the way God meant you to function. You're not in your sweet spot. We need people to coach us. Uh, my dad would do that sometimes. I think I have a gift of leadership. It's kind of borne out in different things that I do. Leadership in my church, leadership as a, as a pastor of a region. These are things that you're asked to do because people see it and they want you to do it because they think the church confirms your gifts. When I was studying to be a pastor and living in Milwaukee, my parents came to see us for va- their summer vacation for a week. And I was, I was receding in the use of my gift of leadership at all at my church. And I was just very uh, withdrawn. But we were married, had two, had two kids at the time. And my parents visited us at church. And the pastor there was a strong leader. And my dad must have been watching the way and listening to me at our home in our little apartment where they were staying with us for four or five days. And we got to church. And then this pastor just was being a good pastor in the hallway at church, being the leader that he's supposed to be. <laughs> my dad cornered me in the back in the narthex. And he goes, do you see how that guy's doing his ministry? And I said, yeah. You know, i got my son in my arms. Yeah. He goes, quit slinking around. He goes, you need to lead like that pastor and stand up and speak out. And you're here at church. You love the people and be a pastor to them. Yes, Dad. <laughs> right? And sometimes I'm going to tell you when I want to go run back and hide in my office or just stand back in there until it's time to come out, I can hear my dad going, you stop slinking around. And you get out there not because you feel like it, and you lead because that's what you were made to do. Right? What's your gift? If it's leading, then lead. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's giving, then give. If it's showing mercy, then go show some mercy. If it's encouraging, then make the, write the text. Write the email. Say the word. Tell the guy it was a great suit on Easter. Don't let anybody accuse you of wearing a white suit is bad. Right, Rachel? Tell them. 
Be an encourager. That's your gift. That's your sweet spot. Now what happens? The church is blessed eternally. Because I think that if I hadn't had key conversations like that from my dad, I wouldn't be standing here as a pastor today. I might be on earth. But I think I'd be doing something different. And I, I, I have seen, and you have seen, the eternal blessing of your involvement at church, just like I have. And, and, and again, it's eternal differences that we're talking about. Together, we do great things. Alone, we look silly running around on the baseball field trying to do our base position. But together, we save souls, right? So um, there, lots of souls have been saved through every church. But I'm going to tell you about one that was saved through this church. His name was Dan. He phoned here. Uh, one Sunday after church, I picked up the phone and rang there in the hallway. And uh, it was before I had a cell phone, a long time ago. And uh, he said, I need to talk to you today. And I said, I just finished church. I've got a hospital call to make. I don't even know who you are. You probably can wait. He said, I need to talk to you today. He said, my wife kicked me out of the house because we got in a big fight and I hit her. And I go, well, how did you even know to call me? Because when I got on the phone, he said, are you Pastor Patterson? And uh, he said, well, I went to visit my church in South Austin. This No, went to visit a church in my neighborhood in South Austin today because this happened in my home. And he said, I, the pastor there said, I'm leaving for Russia. <laughs> this is my last Sunday here. There's no way I can help you. Here's the phone number of our sister congregation, the pastor's phone at the church up in North Austin. Call him. And he goes, so I'm calling you because I need to talk to you today. And I said, Tuesday's the quickest opening I've got. And I thought, that it'll stand the test, right? Well, he was here Tuesday, 30 minutes early, stomping around outside the building. And he came in, and he wanted help. And he wanted his life fixed. He was military. He had messed it up. But his wife had messed it up, too. And he wanted to, me to tell him A, B, C, D, how to fix it. And I said, first thing is, after everything you've told me so far, I think you are a pig. And he said, I don't think I'm that bad. And don't talk to me about the God stuff. And I said, no, I think you're a pig. Because anybody that treats their wife the way that you did needs to be told that. And he goes, I, I don't think you have a right to tell me that. And I said, I just did. <laughs> he said, I said, we're about out of time anyway. And you need to think about what I'm saying. You need God and you need to repent of what you've done. And you need to come to him for forgiveness. And you need to understand that God is ready to help you. But you've got to be broken first by by understanding how far you've gone from his will. And he said, when can I see you again? We made an appointment a few days later. He came in and he said, I've been thinking about what you said so much. He goes, I don't think God could ever forgive me. Well, now he swung all the way the other way, right? And he, it took me an hour to convince him that God had forgiven him through his son, Jesus Christ, and that all the Bible passages I could throw at him. And at the end of that, he cried and he said, I, I believe that Christmas, I don't know this fall of the year, that Christmas, I got one of the best Christmas cards I've ever gotten from anybody. He made it, you know, where you could make, you can still do that, make cards, you know, custom made on, on the computer. And it was crudely made, but it was beautiful. It said, thank you for giving to me for the first Christmas ever the real meaning of Christmas for me and my family that I am saved. We are saved. I said, ooh, this is nice. Right. Troubles. Up and down. A couple of deployments. PTSD followed. And he left the church. Left his family. And I hadn't seen him for a long time. And I thought he was lost. 
And then I got a text from his ex-wife, who's a member of one of our churches in another state. She said, I'm coming to town. The girl's father, Dan, is dying of cancer, and we didn't know. We didn't find out that he's dying of cancer till just now, and they said he was not going to make it through the week. I got a text two hours later. He didn't make it. He's gone. Can we meet with you? I said, I'm about to leave town, but we can sit right up here in the front of the church, and we can have a little family devotion for you and the girls, and one of them's married, and their little son. And that's when his youngest daughter shared with me a text that I want to share with you. I'll get back over there in a second. Okay, And it's not very long. This man would not write real long things. But this is an amazing text that his daughter... This is the last text, and it was this Easter, that her estranged dad sent to her. Y'all doing okay after the weather ran through? She said, yeah, we're fine. There was a bad storm. He said, yep. And then this is what he said. The price is paid. We are redeemed. I love you. She said, I love you too. And that was the last text or communication she got from her dad. The price is paid. We are redeemed. And I love you. There was a place he could phone because there was a church here that cared to have a ministry keep going and have a pastor available. And there was a pastor who was taught by many others and there was a Bible that works and it's made an eternal difference. We are God's gifted people. We need to share the gift. If I was a little boy playing with my friends on a curb of a street one afternoon after school and I pulled this out Reese's out of my pocket and there were four or five little friends around and I sat on the curb and said look what I got I got a Reese's and I opened it up and I ate the whole thing right in front of them and they said you're not going to share any said no it's for me and it tastes great but it's just for me you'd say that boy didn't listen to his mama when she told him to share growing up right You understand what I'm saying? Do not be conformed to the world. Share what we've got with all the giftedness you know how with this, your church or yourself. Stay in the game. Amen. Amen.